You may be busy doing something while you listen to this podcast, but you're never too busy to eat healthy if you eat Vite Ramen. This podcast is sponsored by Vite Ramen. Show support for a sponsor that supports Moore's Law is Dead at the link in the description. And if you do, make sure you use offer code BROKENSILICON. And you can also support Moore's Law is Dead if you need Windows keys or software at cdkeyoffer.com. If you go there, also use the code BROKENSILICON for 25% off Windows keys or die shrink for 3 percent off everything else on the website all right now let's get on with the show Welcome to Broken Silicon, a gaming hardware podcast. I am your host, Tom. And today I am, well, I don't want to say unfortunately, <laughs> because we are always fortunate to be graced with your presence, Dan. But unfortunately, our initially planned guest is actually a different Dan, Daniel Nenny. They actually announced on the recent Loose Ends. Let me know pretty suddenly on Saturday before this, rec- the, you know, like the day before this recording, that he had, I'll just say, a loss in the family. I really don't Mm -hmm. think it's my place to say, honestly, even that much, let alone more than that. So needless to say, we talked a tiny bit, you know, he cleared his schedule for, you know, personal reasons, as anyone would understandably do. And so, well, what what we've done is I reached out to about five different people. Half of them were guests that I was planning to have on later this year anyways. And one of them was the anonymous server engineer that I think first came on in 2019. And then I think came on one or two times after that. But the last time he was on was actually near the end of 2020. Now, I was hoping to have him on, I don't know, probably around a week or so after Bergamo, Genoa X, and hopefully, if it came out on time, Emerald Rapids was out (laughs) to really do a, a look back on what we expected a few years ago and how competitive AMD and Intel are in server and just in general right now. But we had a slot to fill. And so I pulled him in early for this. And I I think it's going to be pretty good. You know, there's still a lot we have to discuss, but I didn't want to shoehorn in too many of the subjects that were meant for Daniel Nenny for him to answer, like anything involving server or the market and recession and all of that. I think this guy, who's really a veteran in the industry, he can answer in a similar manner to how Daniel Nenny can. But a lot of the foundry stuff I felt was not really worth using there. Let's just save that for when Daniel can come on and to just kind of round out a full episode and at least touch on some of the more gamer-focused stuff that I think people expect us to touch on regularly. I brought you in, Dan, for this opening segment here. So what we're going to do is me and Dan are going to talk about the 7600 XT, you know, the future of cooling, and actually some of the questions asked for Daniel Nenny that I do believe I can answer that I did in my own research and preparation just to try to get to some of the stuff that was submitted for him. So stay tuned for the talk with a server veteran about Intel's place in the market, AMD's place in the market, what's going to happen to these companies over the next few years. Those used to be fan favorite episodes, so I'm <laughs> excited to have them on again. For now, Dan, let's start here. And I'm starting with this question because this is something that I've seen pop up a lot in the past week in the comments. Like, 
We've seen rumors of where mid-range Lovelace is going to perform, and frankly, we can guess. And we've seen where prices are drifting for last-gen high-end products. They're becoming mid-range, like the 6700 XT is becoming 450 or 400, I think even, maybe actually under 400. The 6800 16 gigabytes becoming close to 450. And already we're seeing the 7900 XT drift towards $850. But, you know, I think people are kind of writing off mid-range Lovelace because, I mean, at this rate, what's it going to cost? Like $600 for a, you know, <laughs> at best for a 4070, probably 650, 700. And what's that leave the 4060 Ti at? 500, lucky to be 450. And I think yeah. one of the holdouts, the reason people keep asking about it, is the RX 7600 XT that's based on Navi 33. And there's been, I know there's like been Twitter rumors and stuff going about it, but I, I actually want to just start here. The question I want me and you to discuss briefly here is if this can be the next RX 480, because I've seen a lot of people like directly even ask, asking the question that way. And me and you have already talked about Navi 33 and regarding the 7600 MXT, which is the mobile version. I just want to summarize here. So there will be links in the description. And AMD has shown off charts that seem more honest than what they showed off with Navi 31 up until now that suggest the 7600 MXT, this is full Navi 33, is 25% better than the RTX 3060 Laptop Edition, which remember, the RTX 3060 Laptop Edition actually has more CUDA cores than the desktop version. So right there, what that would tell me is, well, and let me just throw it to you here, actually, that this is going to be probably competitive with the laptop 4060 then, right? Yeah, I would think that at least, right? <laughs> well, me and you were talking about this offline the other day that from what we can tell, the 4060 laptop edition should beat the 3060 laptop edition in many scenarios by about yeah. 10% or more, but me and you don't think there's like almost any chance it's even 30% better, right? I mean, no, not really. It's, I, I know it's, you can't do a one-to-one -one comparison of specs for generations, but you know, a lot of things are cut down uh, from com when compared to the 3060. So eh, I, 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 yeah, I don't think the 4060 can, can be that much stronger than the 3060 really. Yeah, because we're looking at, was it 3,072 CUDA cores instead of, I think, 3,840? So, like, one Something of them like has, that, yeah. depending on which way you go with the math, I think one of them is then about, like, 20% less CUDA cores, and then also it's 128-bit instead of 192-bit. With, with faster RAM, to be fair, but yeah. With, with a bit faster RAM, to be fair. And from what we've seen, a 4080 with 10% less CUDA cores compared to the 3090 Ti can still beat it by, like, 20%. But so that gives us a 20 to 30% adjustment in performance of CUDA cores, assuming they're allowed to boost as high as they need to to do that, by the way. Um, and I guess, yeah, I, I'm sorry. Like, I look at this and I go 10 to 20% better. And so as long as AMD is being honest, <laughs> at least in the TDP ranges they showed for that test, it is going to be that much better. Uh, or it's going to at least be competitive with the laptop uh, 4060, most likely. And if it mm -hmm. is, and don't get me wrong, I think at 35 watts, it might lose. But at least at 65 to 100 watts, if that's true, that's really impressive considering I think we're, yeah, we're talking about like a 200 millimeter squared die on six nanometer versus like a 
I want to say, what was it? I actually had, I leaked the, 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 the <laughs> I think it was like around 150 something millimeter squared for the uh, AD-107. So six to four nanometer, I think at, uh, maybe that's what you would expect, but I think if anything that shows, if this does happen, that AMD at least hit a home run, with the performance they were able to get out of a slightly bigger six nanometer die, right? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, as far as this goes, like performance comparisons and everything, I mean, I don't know. I could see the 7600 XT then if it's beating, uh, if it's beating a 3060 on laptop, I don't, I mean, maybe that it would probably be around 3070 or 6700 XT or so performance. And I don't know if you hit the right price point, I think that could sustain mid-range gamers for a long time especially in the current market well yeah and when i look at another slide that they had that showed the 7600 mxt compared to the desktop 3060 which amd said well the laptop 4060 is not out yet we're comparing it to the desktop 3060 because mm -hmm. we think maybe that's what their laptop 4060 will be comparable to they showed something that was maybe not like 25 30 percent better but 10 to 25 percent better than even the desktop version and so yeah, I mean, look, if you beat a desktop 3060 by, let's say, even 20-ish percent, you're getting pretty, you're, you're beating the 6700 10 gigabyte, you're probably trading blows with a 3060 Ti, and you're maybe mm -hmm. touching 6700 XT, and I, I presume this is at 120 watts, you know, the maximum TDP for the mobile version. Okay, yeah. so then all we need to know, can they push it to 140, 180 watts and get more performance if they can? add another 10 to 20 percent and i rechecked the math before recording this episode <laughs> and if at 120 watts it's competitive with like a 3060 ti or at least close to that if they push it another 20 percent, i think yeah you're looking at best case scenario rx 6800 1080p performance worst case scenario yeah 3060 ti 1080p performance or more and my question to you then becomes so let's just split the difference. Let's say it's like a 150 watt 3070 in 1080p and mm -hmm. 1440p. Maybe it's a 3060 Ti. Is that a winner? Is that the next ARCs 480 at $350? Or does it have to be the 300 or less? If it, I think it has to be 300 or less, right? I mean, because if it's at $350, we're still in this area where price performance isn't really getting any better. And I know maybe we just can't have to accept that that's not the case at least at this generation but i don't know if we're just kind of if we're just getting like i don't know five ten percent better price performance i can't imagine that people will be all that enthusiastic about it but if they got that to like 250 which i don't think is realistic <laughs> 300 definitely i think there would be enthusiasm around it mm -hmm. yeah i agree because you know, the, the thing is, you just got to look at where prices are now, which I also checked right before we started recording. The 6650 XT, I see one for $280 on Newegg. The 6700 10 gigabyte for $320. Really, what we're talking about is something better than a 6700. So for, but it doesn't have 10 gigs of RAM. So for, yeah. this, for this to be a big deal, it, I think it needs to be $300. Now, the good news is, I was just looking at this, like, again, just double-checking my math before this conversation. It has less silicon than a six than a Navi 23. 
And uh, th- there's really no reason this can't cost $300 and make profit. So I think yeah. by far at most $400, and that's with them making Buco Dolores. And at $350, they're still probably making as good or better margins than last gen. So if they the- wanted to go for market share on desktop and laptop, you know, correspondingly, Three hundred dollars, eight and eight, you know, a thirty seventy for three hundred bucks that uses less energy. I think that is something the market would really like. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the one thing I'll I'll say is with the our speculation that it could be three hundred dollars, um, we're not really in a market where the replacement model drops in price from the previous. I mean, the model, the new generation model drops in price from the previous generation model, and I. I I think the best we can probably hope for is like three is the sixty six hundred XTs MSRP three hundred eighty dollars. Um, and with that, I just don't see them being like for this one model. Like, hey, we'll actually drop the price this time around. I mean, I'm always crossing my fingers that they will. But well, but they did though. The seventy nine hundred XT was nine hundred dollars. I know it's not apples, I guess, apples in terms I guess of guy config. Yeah, I, no, but hear I me guess out that's here, true. Dan. They charged eight hundred dollars for the forty seventy Ti, and they called it the forty seventy Ti. They charged more than the MSRP of the thirty eighty. Nvidia did for the forty seventy Ti. Now you can argue over what a card really should be called, but the fact I I make the argument the fact that AMD was literally willing to call the nine hundred XT a nine hundred dollar card to me that tells me that they are willing, if they save money on it, to also maybe price it lower, even if it has the previous-gen moniker, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Uh, I, yeah, I guess that's true. I think but... 350 is totally reasonable to expect. Now, the only thing I will say is, if they actually hit 6,800... Yeah, if they actually hit 6,800 1080p performance... I would suggest maybe yes, they would insist on four hundred dollars. Because what was the sixty eight hundreds MSRP? Was it six fifty? Five eighty. Five eighty. Okay. Although it never really was that until a month yeah. ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if they if they release that for four hundred dollar a sixty eight hundred replacement, I mean, level of performance for four hundred dollars. Yeah, I think people would be happy about that. But if it if it's drifting closer to like the 3060 Ti or the like 6700, um, I don't think people will be that enthusiastic. No, well, and especially, you know, if I go to eBay right now, and I, I apologize for those watching this instead of listening, I keep looking down. I'm coordinating with the guest that's coming on after <laughs> Dan, guys. So I apologize there. Here's the thing though, Dan, the 3060 Ti, I know it's used, I know it's Ampere, but it's like $300 almost on eBay right now in the US. I would make the argument to turn heads it has to be $300. Uh, maybe, yeah. I mean, three, thinking about it, 300 seems a bit low. Three, uh, 350 is a possibility, I suppose, though, yeah. That's what I'm thinking. I don't think it'll be a, a unless it actually manages, to, and again, this would be like the best design graphics card in history. If it actually manages <laughs> with that die size, to uh, exceed the 6800 or match in 1080p, even roughly match it, I think 350 will be a big deal. But I guess, you know, people do ask this directly, when are we going to get another 480? I don't know, guys. I don't know that that 
I don't know if that can ever really happen again. To, what I would think the next 480 would be is if like cut down Navi 32 is like 450 or something <laughs> like, it, like yeah. a, because I just don't see even $300 being an easy mark for any of these companies to hit and nail like 4K performance. I, I think the next time we get something truly like a 480 is when we're in another cycle of rebadges, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Because the 480 is a... 390 rebadge correct if i if i remember no 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 the 580 was the rebadge of the 480 yeah yeah you're right uh, yeah so i don't know but to be uh, fair that is when the 580 got like dirt cheap you know yeah uh well, Polaris so, got dirt cheap i meant to say <laughs> I, I i think another era of re uh, when you're getting a lot of rebadge generations is when you get something like a 480 though mm-hmm. so i wouldn't expect that for a couple cycles at least maybe amd will eventually push the brakes on increasing performance because people don't want an increase in performance at a certain point but <laughs> well amd says you always want the same performance at 200 dollars. gamers have spoken gamers have spoken they don't want better things at 200 dollars. we're making fun of amd's 6500 xt marketing of course um but yeah so i guess just to summarize though i know people are probably hoping to get some thing out there but like ultimately like sky juice angstronomics has confirmed the final specs amd went with there were designs for a bigger navi 33 there was even designs for a little bit of a bigger one that used chiplets but what they went with was basically the cheapest monolithic design and therefore it's correspondingly weaker than at least what some people i talked to were hoping it would be at but that still leaves something between a 6700 and 6800 and 1080p performance that they can easily charge 350 or less for if they choose to mm-hmm. and was is that the next 480 i don't know but i think for sure what that means is 1080p is i mean think about that i mean if it actually brings for that price you know what is this like 1080p 200 hertz gaming it is going to make at least there be a solid offering in the mid-range frankly in my opinion for the first time and like three years (laughs) (laughs) but here's to hoping on that one uh going in the other direction thalo215 writes in and says does amd see the future of their gpus tied to ever increasing power demands is there any hope for those of us not willing to buy 1000 watt psus to run these dang things and i just wanted to throw this in here you know these were some of the questions about power consumption where things are going I, I think AMD, as far as we can tell, is always going to target at least their mid-range at reasonable power consumption. I think you see kind of a divergence here um, in like the size of coolers and whatever in that department. In terms of the high end, though, I see no reason why they won't go to 450 watts if NVIDIA can, especially after the success of the 4090. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I, I mean, I think at least for the uh, medium term I, I agree. 450 watts will probably be a target. I don't know if they're ever going to go beyond 450 watts. I I only think that would happen if there was a huge demand for a 450 watt, like 7950 XT or five or like 550 watt 7950 XTX, and uh, the 40 and uh, whatever uh, Nvidia puts out next uses 550 watts, and that also sells gangbusters. But at the end of the day, I think they only continue to push increase in power if people want to buy it. And at a certain point, I think people will stop caring. Uh, and then that is when you would hopefully get to more power balance in like a generation or two. 
Yeah, like I, I can really see the mid range pretty easily drifting towards as long as capped frame rates, as long as when you're actually gaming, it's saving more energy than the previous gen. I can see the mid range pretty much stopping between 300 to 400 watts and the high end stopping around 500 watts. There's just a matter well, of like, I, 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 practicality, well, though. It's we're not going past that. All these people that say there's going to be 1,000 watt gaming cards, not not in the next five years, not not in a reasonable quantity. It, it doesn't make absolutely any sense. You'll trip breakers in America <laughs> on, across the board. In Europe, maybe you know because of the differences in voltage, they run at a higher voltage in Europe. You could supply more theoretically. A lot of apartments in Europe are actually built to a lower amperage max spec than the mm-hmm. U.S. Anyway, so the the for all practical reasons, I do believe like 500 watts is pretty much the limit with it literally being 650 or 700. Like there's, there's, yes, there may be the occasional 800 watts something, but no, I, I just don't see it. Yeah, and I just think we, you only get that if uh, the market proves that there is endless demand for more powerful GPUs, damn the power usage. And I don't think that's the market we're currently in at least. No. Certainly not in Europe. TMC Payton writes in and says, with power consumption on the rise nearly across the board, what innovations and cooling are on the horizon? Who's working on these solutions? Who would benefit from it? Uh, So to be honest, I think we're going to hit the limits of practicality before we need crazy cooling on graphics cards. Maybe not on CPUs, but I mean, the cooler they're using for the 4090 seems like almost overkill. Now, you could argue that's intentional because they want it to operate quietly, but that thing is the same three slots as like a 3090 Ti, maybe arguably slightly thicker across it because it actually fills out the three slots, but it runs cooler. It's almost silent. Like, I don't know, guys, like that could cool 600 watts. And from what I've seen of the Titan design and what they might actually be doing to retool the center of the card for better airflow. Like, I, I don't know. To me, that looks like it could easily cool 700 watts. And I don't, like I said, like we will trip breakers before 800. So I don't think we need exotic cooling for, and in fact, you mean to tell me they couldn't take this four slot Titan cooler that I've leaked that's starting to be leaked now? My mega size GPU, I want to say his name was on Twitter. And you can't tell me that they couldn't put more effort into its design and turn it into like a three slot design next gen. And I just, I think we're already at the limits. We've solved enough cooling for where it will be a practical issue in all these other regards before we even need insane things. Don't you think? Well, I mean, one could argue we're already at the insane things. I guess we're, we're still at the traditional air cooler, except bigger phase, but I think four slot coolers is at the limits of practicality for most people. Like who who's going to design all of their uh, uh, systems around a GPU that is frankly too big for to be supported by the things that are supposed to support it. Like what are they going to start selling? All I'm sure they are actually, I'm sure those exist. I think you've shown them to me though. Is it going to be like common practice to put like a kickstand on your GPU at some point or something? But I saw one month uh, on Amazon GPU bestsellers. For some reason, they included this. The kickstand was in like the top five. So I now ju- I don't know how valid that is. I don't know what it's counting and not counting when the yeah. Amazon you know algorithm puts together the list. The fact that they've included the kickstand in a GPU list tells you it's not a perfect system they got going over there. <laughs> But to me, that suggests, yeah, it's becoming pretty standard. 
Yeah, I guess. I, I, I just... The day I see NVIDIA market a kickstand on their, one of their coolers is the day I think we've got... Uh, I know the GPU market is just completely screwed. Yeah. Um, all right, let me move shift gears here to a few final questions before we switch to the guest. So QH Freddy writes in and says, does AMD really want to dig deep into markets like client and gaming if those markets are not only low margin, but high variance? AMD being, and he puts this in quotes, risk averse, feels more like it's just them avoiding investing in growth and low reward markets. Why don't they just let Intel run themselves dry, subsidizing laptop R&D, making tons of designs for OEM that cost tons of money, if you ask me? Their investments in server support personnel will actually be useful for them in the future to grow their deployments. Well, dumping money into laptop OEMs has given basically nothing in the last decade other than maybe, I don't know, 360-degree hinges on bulky tablets? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I, I mean... That's what I've been trying to say here is I think AMD, it's time. It is time for AMD to like really go for client a little harder in the next year. But at the same time, you know, and, and we'll get to this later in the episode with the guest. I actually went back and listened to what server market share he thought was possible. Almost everyone I talked to a few years ago was like, AMD will be lucky to get to 30% server market share by 2025, and 40% sounds like a pipe dream. Now I have multiple analysts I talk to that are like, I don't know, they might hit 40 or 50 in the next few years. (laughs) And if that happens, that will be money so much better well spent than, yeah, designing Dell's laptops for them to still maybe lose the design to AMD when they copy your design and put Ryzen in there. (laughs) You mean to Intel, I think. But uh, yeah. It's, it's one of those markets. No, uh, people just don't have much insight on because most people aren't exposed to the server market, but that makes a a ton of money and maybe uh, project spending millions of dollars or whatever uh, on, uh, making a new laptop design that you can instead just slot into, uh, old designs doesn't really make that much sense even if it's disappointing to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I think at a certain point they should start putting more money into it because I, I have to imagine they have more breathing room now to do it. Um, mm-hmm. But eh, that's clearly not the case, at least this generation. So we can hope at for least the next. It doesn't seem like it right now, but, and, and, you know, I, I mean, AMD went from like five, 10% laptop market share or something to like 20%. Uh, with Renoir and Cezanne and Rembrandt, and they put a lot of effort into winning stuff there. That was when they were having Cezanne go against Intel's ridiculous 14 nanometer chips. Mm -hmm. Intel's Alder Lake, Raptor Lake are not as far as behind as Comet Lake was. It's just a fact. And maybe Strix, though, will be a similar situation. You know, Strix versus um, Raptor Lake and then Meteor Lake will be a similar situation to, like, Comet Lake versus Cezanne. That's when you go for like spending all this money on client when it's like a guarantee they want your chip. It's not yeah. a guarantee this year, but Genoa's better. It's just better than, and Bergamon, it's all just better than what Intel has in service. So spend your money there. Um, Quick Jumper writes in and says, Hey, Tom and Dan, what's the current status on number of employees in NVIDIA, Intel, and AMD? I guess a lot of employees that were fired from Intel are going to AMD and NVIDIA. Do you have any information on how fast AMD and NVIDIA are hiring? What professions are they focusing on? How big will they be in two to three years in terms of employees? So I'll answer my part of this first. I know you did a bit of research too, Dan. 
Um, I literally have some sources that used to be Intel sources that are now AMD. So mm. this is happening. Um, in term, and I asked a couple of AMD employees before we started recording, they're like, there's new faces, but I don't know a percentage. Um, having said that, most of my Intel sources are still at Intel and haven't left the company. So as much as Intel is, I think in January specifically, maybe not as much last year, like I heard of all these stories of like right after the Christmas party, they said you're going to have to leave the company in a month. Um, I think there's going to be a rude awakening or it's going to come out in Intel's quarter one earnings, how many people they're firing. But, you know, it's still probably going to be like 20 to 30% of the company at most. And at the end of the day, that leaves you, and I mean at most, could just be 10%. Um, and, and at the end of the day, that leaves you with most of them still there. And I believe AMD is getting close to 20,000, NVIDIA 25 or something. But you actually looked this up. What's the exact number, Dan? Uh, yeah, so we don't have an exact number from this they're on their headcount this year from AMD or NVIDIA. But as of last year, according to the SEC, AMD had about 15 to 16,000, had 15.5 thousand employees. NVIDIA had 22,400. And uh, this year, uh, Intel has uh, reported to the S- uh, yeah, SEC uh, 131,000 employees. Um. Yeah, and so, when I saw that, I was like, wait, really? But then I realized almost everyone getting laid off, I was told they got laid off basically like the week after Christmas and were told they had to find employment within like a month. So my suspicion, because there's no way around this, I know way too many people that know someone who just left Intel. And I I think what we're going to see is they just kind of didn't want to show it until quarter one. Yeah, and the thing is, you just don't have... um these employee headcounts, at least as far as reporting goes, aren't high enough resolution to really detect a loss of employees from one month to the next, mm-hmm. unless it happens at the correct month. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So the best we can say, I, I can say is Intel reports growing about 5 to 10% every year, most years in employee counts, and AMD and NVIDIA report about 15 to 20%, <laughs> right. which they're smaller companies. So that makes sense. But it does sound like it's conceivable by the end of 2023, AMD will be like 20,000 to 25,000 people and NVIDIA will be 25 to 30 or something. If they, if AMD has a really good year, yeah, they could be to tw- a little over 20,000. I would expect. Yeah. Pie in the sky though, by the end of 2023, Intel still bigger than both combined, probably still twice as big as both combined. Yeah, At a minimum yeah. three times bigger than Nvidia and four times bigger than AMD. Right. Unless AMD thinks that they need to double the size of their company this year, which I don't mm-hmm. think is logistically even possible, really. And it seems silly, and it's better slow and steady wins the race. I mean, growing ten to twenty percent is a lot. Yeah, <laughs> and that's like making sure you're placing people in the right spot. A lot of things I heard about early AXG is they just hired like hundreds of graphics engineers and didn't know where to put them or maybe it would have been better to have a smaller team and well this leads me to the next reader mail chris rich writes in and says if you got sent back in time five years with your current knowledge and were made the ceo of intel what would you do and, and so this is like a hindsight is 2020 thing for sure i would either cancel axg or focus on axg being much smaller much more nimble and making like one 
192 bit 250 millimeter square die that tries to beat the 3050 and is actually profitable at $200. And then you use that to support drivers because if hindsight is 2020 here, well, then we know they spent too much on AXG and it didn't deliver. I don't agree though that they should never try. I, I definitely don't. I just think the hole in the market they could have filled is the one good card from 200 to $300. And the fact of the matter is, if they were focusing on one die, not two for Alchemist, they had a more nimble team. I wonder if they could have successfully launched that actually in quarter one, 2022. And there are all these shortages and actually gotten some good headlines. That For me, I mean, there's it's such a huge company. I'm sure if I spent out, I could probably do like a five-hour podcast looking at what you'd do differently with each thing if, I, if you knew everything now. But to me, that's the thing that stands out. Maybe not canceling HXG, but just accepting reality that making a graphics division takes time and focus on wins and, and not trying to be the best at everything, which what I always heard in 2021 was what is getting Intel that no one talks about is they can't accept that they're not the best. And so they <laughs> have to go for everything. That exp- That's what causes them to spend too much money and have to cancel uh, Optane, practically cancel Arc, and uh, cancel a bunch of other stuff too. Yeah. And on top of that, I, I, I guess... <laughs> One, I, I would probably have divested from all of their dumb projects earlier, too, that they're, I don't know, seemingly just shedding every time they uh, do a quarterly report. <laughs> like, how many businesses did Pat Gelsinger announce that they were getting out of recently? Like, it, it was a lot. I, I think I would have just cut those off sooner. And mm-hmm. if this is possible, I, I mean, I think accelerating uh tiled designs more than they did because i think they're that's why they're falling behind in cpus well yeah and although they're not completely behind anymore so i guess this this would still fall into the purview of the past five years so going back to 2018 but if we're being honest though if you like if chris if you change the question to like past eight years i would have said dump half of this dumb stuff and fund your foundries like again (laughs) if they would have gotten an eight core ice like desktop chip at like 4.5 gigahertz out at the same time as Zen Plus, which was the original plan. If you look at old, old, old roadmaps, they wanted an eight core Ice Lake chip on desktop in like 2018. If they would have had that, uh, that's it. You know, that was, you know, AMD would still be resurgent. AMD would have still logically had, they can only go up. They would have taken some market share, but you know, that type and like having Ice Lake Xeons out in 2018, like 40 core Xeons against 32 core Epic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, AMD would have had better price performance and probably similar efficiency still, depending on the segment. But Intel wouldn't have been behind it all. And I would have had an ice like system, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> 20% more IPC than, uh, I mean, yeah. Because <laughs> what, yeah, I guess the... You know, and 14 nanometer is actually delayed as well, Dan. It's conceivable they would have had like a six core 14 nanometer earlier too. Like mm. the 14 nanometer would have been ahead of schedule. Maybe Broadwell would have been a full lineup and Skylake would have had six cores from the start. I don't know. Well, I mean, I think if you're just looking at it from an outside perspective, Broadwell is where it looks like they were starting to have issues, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I, I mean, if you could go back like eight or ten years um, and, tell, and tell, hey, uh, you can't coast for the next five years. You can't just coast forever because in AMD will be resurgent in the grand scheme of things not that long from now. Uh, I think they would have done a lot of things differently. 
Yeah, but they just didn't take AMD seriously. So if anything, it's like, hey, guys, worst case scenario from AMD, just so you know. Maybe yeah. change how you're spending <laughs> things. Um, all right. Final reader mail here before we switch gears to the guest. Carbon Cry writes in and says, Intel showed a slide on IFS. I find both quite dishonest in revealing and weakness of the IFS plan. I'm going to focus on the weakness, which is no 28 nanometer class node and no Intel 7 variant, a best possible DUV node. Especially 28 nanometer creates a gap, gaping hole in their lineup between 14 nanometer and Intel 16. It is viable for Intel. Is it viable for Intel to create a 28 nanometer node? Would it be worth the investment since they would also need to catch up with how much experience there is with other 28 nanometer nodes and how wide and deep the first and third party IP libraries for these nodes are. So, yeah, I decided to answer this. This was submitted for Daniel Nenny, but I recently talked to some people at Intel Foundries and I can just say um, their Intel 16 node is a relaxed version of their 14 nanometer node that they were mm. using forever that they've built of course, a ton of capacity for. And they're just basically re relaxing it is the way, like they, they said, is he literally said, it's a relaxed 14 nanometer node. You know, less stringent design requirements, cheaper and better yielding. This is their answer to my understanding, Carbon Cry, is they built up all this 14 nanometer capacity uh, because of their shortages. And they see it as finding ways to make that cheaper and better yielding is going to be their moving forward 28 nanometer for the foreseeable future. I can't promise you that's the right move, but I think they've decided that's what they have to do. And as much as 28 nanometers cheaper and, you know, there's all these material reasons that like you might want that, they see it as, nope, this is it. You know, we're just going to have a better than 28 nanometer that we plan to use for the next decade in that class. That's at least how it was described to me. And then if you need anything cheaper, they still have 40 nanometer. So, uh, so I, I guess I actually just don't know. Uh, do you know like what products are currently being used with uh, at Intel 14 nanometer foundries or now called Intel 16? Yeah. <laughs> um, the, I have a link in the description to some media tech thing. You okay. know, so there's some chipsets they're making there. Uh, oh, I also know of other products they're making on Intel 16 that I can't talk about. So okay. the answer is <laughs> yes, there's a bunch of things they're designing for it. Okay. So, um, but yeah. All right. Uh, and we will actually touch on that. Their 14 nanometer shortages and their, the company's like solvency moving forward very soon with the anonymous server engineer. But before mm -hmm. I jump to him, Dan. Thanks for coming on and helping out here in a chaotic weekend of throwing together an entirely different or a slightly different, at least a, diff a different in guest, but slightly different in focus episode. Mm -hmm. You're Dan the man. Yep. Well, have a good rest of your recording and enjoy the rest of the podcast, I guess. I will. Bye. All Jesse wants for Valentine's Day is to get a hold of one of them geese and maybe get some extra naps in. But if you're a gamer like me and you're building a new PC, you probably just want reasonably priced Microsoft keys. And if so, go to cdkeyoffer.com this Valentine's Day. This piece of content is brought to you by cdkeyoffer.com. There's just no reason to pay exorbitant monopolistic prices for Microsoft Office or Microsoft operating systems anymore. Not when you have someone like cdkeyoffer.com com has been a fantastic sponsor of Moore's Law is Dead for many years now. If you're looking for anything from Steam games, Origin games, Uplay games, or PlayStation keys, 
or reasonably priced Microsoft software, go to cdkeyoffer.com today, click the links in the description, and use the offer codes BROKENSILICON for 25% off Microsoft keys and DieShrink for 3% off everything else on the website. Don't be like Jesse here who's chewing on my chair right now. Be smart, don't overpay for online software, and go to cdkeyoffer.com today. All right, and welcome to the second part of this episode. Um, I was actually planning to have this guest on, hopefully after Bergamo, Genoa X, and if it comes out on time, like if anything they make comes out on time, Emerald Rapids launch. But, you know, we had to move some things around and you haven't been on for two years. So ultimately, I feel like this episode is is long overdue. You are what we used to call and will still call, I suppose, the anonymous server engineer last time you were on was i believe november of 2020 please introduce a lot of people here this will be the first time they've heard you speak as well so please so please tell people who you are what you do and as much information about that as you feel comfortable saying and then uh just how you've been for those who haven't heard from you for two years yes uh i've been uh, working uh, i do servers uh been doing it been in the industry for over 20 years uh I worked uh, in in a lot of the uh, security sensitive and privacy sensitive uh, industries, like healthcare and finance. Uh, currently, I'm actually in a new position. I work uh, for a security company, also an infrastructure company. Uh, this company uh, is actually uh, at, uh, responsible for a large part of the internet traffic. Mm-hmm. If this company goes dark, thirty uh, percent of your websites goes away. So, uh, uh, security is imperative with this firm. And so, uh, I was brought in to also, uh, wrangle the operations up to standards. So, um, how actually I, you know, how I, how I met you was actually, uh, Spectre Meltdown in 2018. And I ran servers both, uh, I have my own little hosting services, but I also run, I also do contract and consulting for mm. at the time for the banks. And when that news hit, it was a disaster because up until then we had, uh, we always took the hardware security for granted and no more. And then when we do the mitigation, we start seeing performance losses. So that put us in a really bad situation. And at the time, AMD just came out only six months uh, prior, uh, their new version, their new uh, server processor, which was Epic, and that was Naples Epic. Mm-hmm. And they actually had a uh, SEV and SME for security encryption, as well as secure root of trust and uh, encryption of virtual machine. And it was absolutely fortuitous they actually put that feature in just before we got hit with a security bomb. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so in my effort to try to find as much information as I can and try to see what implication it is to the business, to all the servers, um, that's how I stumbled upon people, including you, and you're, and you're one of the very few uh, uh, YouTube people that actually talk about uh, servers. But You mean I like gaming see- YouTube people who actually bothers to talk about like the real money maker that all these architectures we use for gaming are actually meant for, which is server first, right? Yes, yes. It's, it's servers are what pay the bills. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
they help run our society. And, and so you're trying to talk about service, but I can tell you just don't have the experience. And it's like, well, so I mean, it's, I'm certainly not a server engineer. Um, you know, actually, I, I want to jump into one of those things you brought up because I just, it still brings back so many memories. Like you would see these people on the online gaming forums having these debates like, oh, you know, I don't care if Skylake loses performance from this thing. I don't need the security mitigations, you know, and and actually, and I, I had to remind myself, it's been so long, like the shortages with Intel 14 nanometer products started in 2019 before COVID. This was not a COVID thing. And it was because of the security mitigations that lowered performance per core. And a lot of companies weren't sure if AMD was you know, a flash in the pan, if Zen would really pan out long-term. Yeah, Zen 1 was impressive, but they weren't sure if Zen 2, 3, and 4 could really deliver as well as they said. Zen 1 was a beta product. It was not something to... It's a nice idea, but as far as a production-ready silicon, I don't view it as such, so... Not to mention, if you buy it, it's like... you're. It's very limited what you can do. What are you buying into? Like, you don't usually buy into one generation. You're like, we want to know that AMD can support us with better than Intel's offerings for the next five years, at least if we switch. 10 years. Yeah. And so a lot of companies kept buying up Intel after these security flaws that, I mean, in some examples over their performance was cut by half, if not more. And they just made bigger server rooms, ordered more products. And that is why there was a 14 nanometer shortage before COVID. And, And almost no one was talking about that, but you were able to, you were on the ground floor. You were able to talk about this. Yeah, like, yeah. we're like doubling the size of our server rooms. We're going to air gap them so some of them aren't even connected to the internet so we don't have to disable as many features for security flaws. Like for you, this was just like, it, it was like a worst case scenario in terms of like the stuff it's you had to do. disaster. Yeah. I, let me ask you this now. This was a future question, but I'm going to just throw it in right now. Is that changed? Is Intel security relative to AMD considered not that bad anymore? Is AMD starting to get hit with more security issues than they used to? Like now that they've taken a decent amount of market share, like the way we talked back in like 2019, 2020, you're like Intel's reliability. It's really taken a hit in perception with these flaws and the continued flaws. Is that still how people perceive Intel now that you work with? And do they see AMD as better or not to this? Yeah, it, it's this, this is the part that really grates on me because the, the media, okay, the enterprise media, they, they talk about performance. It's not what, that's not what most people care about. I mean, sure, yeah, maybe the hyperscalers and, you know, certain enterprises, but that's more of a small niche. Uh, it's mostly it's costs and security. Those are the two biggest things. Cost and security, and security and cost is basically cost of the equipment, cost of operating the equipment, cost of maintaining the equipment. Would you say that Intel is still perceived as unreliable in terms of security? Because it sounded like you thought of that back then. And is AMD now, still cast- regarded as more reliable, or or okay. are, or is the market share starting to catch up with AMD to where there's more flaws being discovered? Right. You're gonna. Um, with Intel, they they have improved like the old uh, security vulnerabilities. If you run like Cascade Lake or Ice Lake, and they are getting better. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, the the problem is, are they really trying to get at the root problems and trying to solve? Because this is really an architectural design flaw, and 
And the question is, does Intel have the design uh, priority straight? You know, they're talking about AIs and, and uh, all these accelerators. You know, I just don't see where the uh, where most of the people's use case are going to be. And then mm -hmm. on top of that, they're locking away with using software-defined uh, silicon. Well, that's you're now introducing another potential uh, security vector of attack. With Sapphire Rapids. Yeah, like you said that the fact that some of these accelerators on Sapphire Rapids, they're at least they're saying they're going to do it, that you have to pay a licensing fee to leverage them. That's another vector that you could hijack for security flaws, right? Yeah, the, the, the second you start modifying, enabling, disabling silicon, I mean, that's another vector of attack. That's actually the big concern. It's not so much the licensing fee. That's a dumb thing for them to do from a business standpoint because then you prevent adoption. If you're trying to get people to adopt, you got to make it wide open. Uh, don't hide it behind paywalls because then you're going to limit the adoption of it, of, of that uh, feature. And then on top of that, when you limit the adoption, now all of a sudden you're making everyone who buys Intel uh, Sapphire Rapids to buy with that silicon unused. And don't tell me that that thing's not consuming power. That thing is consuming power. Mm -hmm. So you're basically spending energy for things you're not using. And that's that's a cost. That's an unnecessary cost. So it sounds like what you're saying is since all of those security flaws a couple of years ago with Intel, Intel isn't regarded as much of a threat to security as it used to be, but there's still an apprehension that a bunch, because, you know, Ice Lake didn't have almost a, a, most of those flaws. And I think they've Sapphire been fixing Rapid. them. They've been fixing them. But the thing is that what else are, there is, and what are they going to do from a holistic standpoint to really knock this out? You know, mm -hmm. I mean, understand, understand that obviously you're going to have it, uh, security flaws no matter what. Uh, AMD is going to have it. They're going to have it in the future. Same thing with Intel. But at least AMD, they're trying to lock things down. They're trying to encrypt things. They're trying to find different ways of securing things in many different ways. Uh, they're putting in new features. Um, I don't hear that from Intel. Mm. I just don't hear it. I don't hear They talk about performance. They talk about AI. I don't hear them about security, which is actually something that we all care about. Yeah. Yeah, it was so interesting. I, I just one of the last guests that was just on was Wendell from Level One Techs, and it was it was so interesting to hear him explain why a lot of customers don't care about the accelerators and Sapphire Rapids. He basically said it's because they don't have full control over them, and ultimately, a lot of these companies like Netflix have already developed their own accelerators for yeah. managing network data and streaming, anyways. And guess what? They have full control over them. They don't need to pay licensing cost if they want to switch to AMD. And keep using the accelerator cards. Actually, it's, it's much more fundamental. Is that it allows you business agility. That's worth a lot more than anything. The licenses and you licenses nothing compared to the cost of the compared to the opportunity cost and the business the loss of business agility. Mm -hmm. So this is where I want to like transition. I actually did re-listen to part of the last episode you were on in 2020, and one of the things we talked about. Um, one of the predictions or one, one of your judgment calls, shall we say, is that it's going to be AMD will never hit. You said basically you find it hard to believe AMD could ever hit 50% market share right. in the next decade. That, I mean, you said, frankly, if Intel just kept selling their 14 nanometer stuff they're making to this day, 
replacement parts with customers that need to use Intel will probably keep Intel at majority market share for the foreseeable future, even if they weren't making new stuff. Um, AMD did, and you said that getting above 35% server market share would That's be in, would incredibly hard for AMD to do, but if they did even get to 35%, it'd be a huge problem for Intel. Now, the funny thing is, is here in 2023, I believe AMD's at 30%, and I talked about this with Dan before I switched to your portion of the episode, that, and this blows my mind, analysts a couple years ago were like, hopefully AMD can get to a fourth of the market share. If they do, they'll be a rich company. They have. And all of them two years ago said to me, we don't see AMD getting above 40%. This may surprise you. Multiple analysts I talk to now offline um, say that they expect AMD to hit 40% market share in the next two years, which is nuts. So my question for you is, do you stand by AMD won't hit 50% market share by like, I don't know, 2026, 2027, and or 40% in the next two years? Um, Has your mind change on this at all? I probably would say at least definitely they can hit 40%. It's it's, the tipping point is about 37%. Once you get to Mm -hmm. 37%, people are going to start to think that's close to 40%. 40% is close to half. Mm-hmm. So what it does is that the ecos- the software ecosystem, they're willing to now devote time and energy to both Intel and AMD. They're going to do that. And then customers, because the, the, uh, the ISVs, the software providers, they're going to certify on AMD. So now the customers have confidence, hey, if I buy AMD, I know the software is going to be there because there's a large enough market share. So a lot of people they would fo- they are like followers, and they do that because they, they don't want to take the risk, which is understandable. I'm also uh, one of those. I don't usually like to be on the bleeding edge. I like to be on the trailing edge. That's mm-hmm. because I want to have stability, reliability. I want to know what I'm getting myself into. Uh, because unfortunately, when I a few times where I did adopt new technology, unfortunately went badly for me. So, and uh, and there's a lot of costs involved. This happened early in my career, so I've been very, very, very conservative about adopting new technologies. Uh, so when you get to 40%, that's almost 50-50. And so now this, the entire software ecosystem, they're going to make sure that it's going to work on AMD. And so now, as a customer, you can then look at, you can have confidence knowing that AMD is going to be supported. Yeah, and so- that. And you're that, saying it's almost like point. a mental block, right? It's like yeah. if you're at 15%, well, that sounds like 10. If you're at 20%, that sounds like nothing. The yeah. second you get above 35%, it's like 37% well, is your tipping point. We're over a third. We have to support them, basically, is yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. And at that point, Intel loses its, shall we call it, juggernaut advantage where they're seen as the and it's gone. only option. It's, it's, it's gone. That's it. Mm-hmm. They're not going to get it back. And the problem is that uh, their, their margins are going to get are going to go down and they're not coming back because Intel has such a high cost has a co- high cost of capital so that's why you're seeing that that earnings I just didn't expect it to happen that quickly uh, I was thinking it, it can go down but it will probably take about 10 years because that's what I was going by during the Opteron days the Athlon 64 Opteron days uh, and I knew about the Opteron I knew about its advantages but the applications that we were supporting at the time that I ran at the time, they're much more tied to Intel. Uh, they're all 32-bit. They're all tied to Intel. We didn't have any applications that ran 64-bit. So 
there's no point to uh, jump to 64 if the applications aren't there. It, it, it's not worth the risk. Uh, and then on top of that, uh, we don't know how well AMD can handle it. And they only they did it for, they did it well for like seven years, but they couldn't get to ten years. And mm-hmm. and when we when Bulldozer came out, we saw it. It's like okay, AMD's done. That's so I mean, interesting, by the way, because that you're all the stuff you're saying here, because you know, like one of the reader mails from Chris Rich was like, "Is your perspective changes anything surprised you?" It sounds like what surprised you isn't so much that AMD is taking market share; it's just that they're taking it this quickly. It's about half the time. Another thing is, I normally, if I was going to upgrade, transition, it would be it would be at least five, seven years. Mm-hmm. I would take my time. The problem is that. And the thing and reasons that because I just refreshed my my Xeons, you know, not even uh, two and a half. It was less than two years ago. You know, I bought, I got my Xeons, had installed in two thousand seventeen. Yeah, actually, not even a year. It was it was not even a year of my new Xeons, and then you have the Spectre meltdown, mm-hmm. and then by March, basically about a year into ownership, you already lost twenty five percent of the performance. Normally, you know, when you refresh, you don't usually bother with the new competitor until after you start doing your next refresh. Unfortunately, in this case, basically the Intel ship sank in the middle mm-hmm. of the ocean. That's basically what happened. So I, you had a sinking ship. Netcat was the final straw in that case. And that's when I got the... Uh, the Epic servers, and I was actually originally going to go for a 24 core to keep mm-hmm. the cost down because that was the sweet spot. But everybody jammed up in there; everyone's crowding at the uh, the lower end of the stack, and so basically the price got compressed. The difference, so basically doubled you know double the RAM and three times the processing capacity for only an extra thirty five hundred dollars. So you yeah. know. That's, I ended up buying the 64 core. It wasn't even my first choice, my fifth choice, to be honest with you. Now, what's interesting, though, about this is you did, to give you credit, though, you did say, because, uh, you know, again, I re listened to part of the last episode you were on. You said that you saw something that you weren't hearing enough people talk about. You said Intel has a margins issue. That the thing people are buying from Intel servers a few years ago, they're all the low margin SKUs and that they don't see, you don't see this improving. You see Intel's margins continuing to decline for the next few years. And unless they pull a rabbit out of a hat, they're going to get to a point where AMD has a third of the market and Intel's margins are way worse than AMD's. Here's the thing. Hey, that was very prescient. That's happened. And we can see it in AMD and Intel's recent margins. So you called that exactly. Here's the reason, because we don't have confidence in the security of Intel. So we ha- so if you have to be on Intel, you have to cycle them quickly. So mm-hmm. people normally keep Intel service five to seven oh, years. to the now next bring- generation, right? You yeah. want to go to the next gen as soon as possible because that will have because whatever security mitigations you expect. Exactly. So it's basically you want to get the next generation as frequently as possible such that you get the updated security mitigation as fast as possible. But mm-hmm. The consequence is because you're going to cycle them faster, your CapEx cost has to be lower to compensate for the lowest life cycle of the machine. Mm-hmm. Well, and then there's this runaway effect where, you know, I've been <clears throat> trying to explain this to people. They're like, 
Well, you know, Sapphire Rapids versus Genoa is much closer than Cascade Lake X versus Milan. And it's like, yes, but people buying AMD servers right now are buying it based on AMD's performance in the previous couple of years. And they see, I believe what I've heard is they see AMD as more reliably increasing performance every year. So maybe Intel's almost caught up with Sapphire Rapids right now. They know Zen 5 will be another banger. They're not sure Intel's next gen will be. And so people are buying into Zen 4 this year in record numbers because they see it as a safer bet over the next five yes. years. Right. And 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 while I personally won't be buying Zen 4 and the reason is because it's a new platform. And when I buy servers, I don't buy servers based on CPU generation. I usually buy them based on memory generation. So mm-hmm. the first generation of Epics is Naples, Rome. Milan. It's a DDR4 generation. I consider that one generation. This new generation, which is Genoa, that's the DDR5 generation. I never buy the first gen the first refresh of a new platform generation. And that's because the cost of the memory. And the cost of the memory is what I f- focus on mm-hmm. when dealing with server refresh, not so much the CPU. Um let me see. I think I had a question about that. Chris Rich writes in and he says, when server processors are discussed, it often feels like prices are ignores as if no buyer actually cares about the purchase price. What's the reality? Relative to Genoa, how do you rate the pricing of Sapphire Rapids and what are your thoughts on Intel's on-demand pricing for it? Bergamo will probably be launching next quarter with 128 cores. What kind of pricing would you expect to see for that relative to Genoa that has 96 cores? Looking ahead to next year, Let's just say for the sake of argument that Turin from AMD and Granite Rapids from Intel have similar performance and power consumption on general workloads, but Granite Rapids cost 50 to 100% more per CPU socket. Would that really be a win for Intel, or would you not care if the per socket cost is 50% more? Most people uh, buy based on the workloads, the software, and what their cost structures are. Uh, the reason I'm more focused on uh, Epic is because I use more predominantly open source software uh, where it's mostly labor and the hardware and power consumption. Uh, there are other, it's mainly in the big, uh, large enterprise like banks and financial services, and I've worked with those, is that the biggest cost to them is not the hardware, it's the software licensing. Some of the, soft, mm-hmm. some of the highest I've seen was $300,000 per server per year. Or Oracle licenses. It's not surprising they can go to a million dollars per year. And at that point, and these are what we call scale up uh, applications, not so much the scale out applications like the cloud, uh, you know, Kubernetes and the microservices. Those are what we call scale out applications. Oracle's, the Sybase, the DB2s, those are what we call scale up applications where you want ever more faster processors. And there, uh, Intel really has a lock on those. It's basically four core, eight, uh, four sockets, eight socket servers. Mm-hmm. That's where uh, those types of applications gets run on, and those servers can get to a quarter million dollars easy. I still per- personally find them kind of wasteful because you can get IBM P series uh, mini mm-hmm. frames. They're coming down in price. They used to be a million dollars systems they're now coming down to uh, in the low six figures and they also and they deliver better uh uh uptime they have better re- uh, redundancies uh 
in x86, no matter what, these are what we call mid-range servers. They're not mainframes. They're not mini frames. It's mostly because of how much redundancy that are built into these machines to ensure uptime. Mm-hmm. Intel machines generally going to have three nines. The mini frames, the main frames, you're going to have four and five nines. That means five nines is like 30 seconds of downtime per year. Okay. Mainframes, I mean, they're coming, yeah, they're coming down in price. So, you know, once Intel servers get beyond $150,000, at that point, it almost becomes means. I might as well just get a P frame, a P series, uh, mini frame and pay the, 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 the licenses and the support contract to IBM. And then because your software licenses can be up to a million dollars or $300,000. So mm-hmm. it's, again, squeeze on the top end too. It kind of sounds what you're saying, at least in the type of servers you purchase for and maintain and work with. Like, it's not, are you saying it's not so much an issue if if a Sapphire Rapids 60 core is twice the price of an AMD 64 core? Like, that's not the big issue. The big issue just is if the overall server it's overall co- so expensive TCO. switching to IBM or something. Yeah, yeah. Or, 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 you know, what's the TCO of, of the entire operations it's not the hardware is just one part it's often a very small part of it. it's the software mm-hmm. the labor it's the power it's also the the timeline time duration so i mean you're often measuring tco over across years but let, let me let me re throw chris's question back at you then he says so if granite rapids next year matches the performance of amd's zen 5 products per socket let's just say overall same performance but granite rapids cost 50 percent more per socket just in physical you know like the actual cpu costs 50 percent more and maybe the platform costs a bit more would you say that's a good thing for intel would that be enough for them to stop amd from taking as much market share or is it just or like is there a point where it costs two, like it costs twice as much? That's an issue. Three times as much. That's when it becomes an issue because you want to get the IBM. Server. Actually, actually, um, I don't know about the sixty, the sixty core cores, but generally in the heart of the market, what I find is that Intel servers overall bottom line price is actually cheaper than AMD. Now, in mm-hmm. terms of CPU prices, Intel is more expensive than AMD, but in terms of platform cost, AMD is actually more expensive than Intel. Mm-hmm. because of supply and demand there's a lot more supply of intel platforms on the market than it is at amd right so okay so you're yeah, it's more right, of so, a wash and so, I, so, I noticed I, I i i've actually spec'd out pricing so so yeah so if granite rapids costs more than amd next year but the performance is the same it won't really matter because at the end of the day with the quantities you're buying it's it's going to cost the same or less anyways yeah and 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 on top of that um, it's getting to we're, we're getting to a point where we're buying either AMD or Intel based on feature sets, mm-hmm. right? So it all comes down to the features and and like the efficiency next year. And so if Intel matches AMD but costs more, that's a win for Intel because of the like market share they still have. You're saying if if they can, they, they can probably try to slow it down. Um, mm-hmm. That's that's really what they're gonna. Be able to do the, the the problem again is definitely for me is, is about the uh, security. They just haven't had their priorities on straight with regards to what we in the enterprise market want. You know, and see, this uh, is what's so fascinating to me. Like when I talk to analysts about this, they basically say, "Well, the damage is done. People are switching to AMD this year because 
of factors, honestly, even outside of per socket performance. They just see Intel as not a reliable bet for the next year or so, right? Like that's that's what it is, and it's just done. The damage is done. Damage is done. And and the problem is that you know I'm going to be almost done with my certification process, and migration process. Every it's five years. There's no way I'm going to turn back. As long as AMD does its job and doesn't screw up, uh, I'm going to still be on it, even if AMD were to end up costing twice as much as Intel, because it's not worth the time and effort to switch back. Yeah, the damage is done, and it's almost like people are defaulting to buying AMD now, just yes. like they defaulted to buying Intel a few Intel, years ago. Yep, yeah, exactly. So, so Trogdor writes in and he says, realistically, how many generations will it take for customers to regain confidence in Intel server? AMD has been consistent in their roadmap, and there's barely anything that suggests Intel can stay competitive in terms of technology, financials, and general consistency. They're going to have to deliver what the customers really want. I just don't see that. And then on top of that, it's going to take a 10 years after they emit what they did wrong and actually have a solution to rectify the problem. And then you got to wait five to 10 years after that before we would start to look at Intel again. You're talking at least 10 to 15 years. That's why I moved from Intel to AMD because I saw that was the timeline I was looking at. There was no way I was going to bridge that gap. It was a two year, you know, it was a small little issue. It was about two years long. I would have stayed on Intel because it's not worth the, the hassle to change. But when I saw what was happening with, during Spectre meltdown fiasco, uh, it, this was clearly because the the problem was more about the Intel culture internally, mm-hmm. and now with that Intel engineer really really helped me gave me a really uh, a sense of what's what's happening in there. It's more like a failure of leadership. Of the recent imposed. Intel anonymous Intel engineer guest that came on. Yes, yeah. yes, and uh, not the current CEO. Current CEO I actually like uh, like him. Uh, he, People don't know it, but he was actually the uh, chief architect for the 486 processor, mm-hmm. which is one of my favorite processors. I actually used that as servers all the way up to 2008. That's how incredible that was. But they had bad leadership prior to Pat. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would even say uh, probably Bob, is, Bob Swan is not too bad. I think he just didn't have the right skill set. And so his job in, in the end was trying to find the right CEO to replace him. Kind of That's like my the, perception as well. People make fun of him, but I think uh, I think he was a good temporary CEO, right? Yeah, and and, like and, and 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 uh, I mean, he's basically the, like uh, Gil Amarillo uh, from Apple mm-hmm. uh, before when he brought in Steve Jobs back in the late '90s. That's when Apple was in a tailspin, and also Roy Reed of AMD when during the mm-hmm. bulldozer area of trying to hold the company together. To get and then eventually find the right person, which is Lisa Sue. Right. So. And, and, and so, but this is interesting because basically what you're saying is it kind of seems like AMD's destined to get to 40% market share in the next few years. And it seems like all Intel can do, and they have to, is try to hit a home run with Granite Rapids, a home run After with home. Diamond Rapids. They have to. And they need to do that for no five years. No margin of error. And that's to get back to probably 70% market share. That's not to kill AMD. Like they, no. It's just going to be a rough few years, and they still have to hit home runs during those rough few years, which frankly is what AMD had to do. They had like to do it. 2015 to 2020. And they so. were in much dire straits. I mean, we were thinking they were going to go bankrupt. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, well, I, no one in their right mind back then was going to ever think about buying Optron. It was just like, you, you're nuts. 
Well, and I keep telling people when they, you know, when people talk about like the crazy moonshot investments you could have made, like Apple or Bitcoin or AMD stocks. And they're like, I'm like, you know, the people that bought AMD at $2, that was a gamble. That company really did go out of business. The reason people made 50X on their investment is because they could have conceivably lost all of their investment at that point. AMD was that cheap because they really were that close to bankruptcy. They, they were really, really close. And the fact that Spectre meltdown happened less than six months after Epic came out with their feature of SEV and SME, mm-hmm. that's, I don't think I've ever seen that. That's like uh, almost like a uh, unbelievable luck. Uh, it's almost like they have an angel looking after, looking over them. I mean, that's how it felt. Jessie here loves bones, but it wouldn't be healthy for her to constantly eat them as much as she would love that. The same is usually true for reasonably priced instant meals. It can feel like you're stuck whenever you're looking for something that's quick to cook, tasty, healthy, and cheap all at the same time. Well, unless you just choose Vite Ramen, this piece of content is sponsored by Vite Ramen. Vite Ramen is a delicious American-crafted source of protein and nutrients that takes minutes to make without sacrificing taste. This includes their classic packages that make it easy to add protein and other ingredients of your choice while it cooks, and also their Ramen Go packages that offer a healthy, microwavable option for those who truly only have 15 minutes free for lunch, whether you're working from the office or you're working at home. With Fight Ramen, you'll never be too busy to eat healthy either way. So click the link in the description and use the offer code BROKENSILICON to save 10% off on a variety of different products, including special bundles for Moore's Law is Dead fans, raw nudes if you want to make up your own recipes, Fight Go packages and other food products and cooking utensils and more. Whatever you'd prefer, using the offer code BROKENSILICON and even just clicking the link in the description really helps Moore's Law is Dead tremendously and it helps you save money on a tasty, quick-to-make lunch meal. Try Vite Ramen today. So Chris Rich writes in again, and he says, with their financial results and layoffs, Intel is getting a lot of negative press lately. From a buyer's perspective, how does this affect you? Do you see this as a short-term blip or do you start to worry about Intel's long-term future? If many customers lose confidence in Intel and start switching away, could that lead to a slow death spiral? Or does Intel have a solid bedrock of support that will enable them to eventually bounce, bounce back without major changes? And, I, and I'm interested in this in terms of just your personal opinion on what's going to happen to Intel, but also just like objectively speaking as someone in charge of choosing the right product for your company, like... When you see all these layoffs and issues, like Roger Kadori dis, you know, demoted at AXG, Optane canceled, AXG disbanded into different groups, like all this chaos, how much does that affect your purchasing decision? Um, I'm not worried about what's happening in the present. Um, I actually have a little more optimistic view of Intel in the future, but we're talking seven to ten years out. And that is because Intel is becoming more of a geopolitical play. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of their biggest strengths is going to be is in having the fabs in politically friendly countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem that TSMC and Samsung has is it's going to be located near to a politically unfriendly country. And yes, I am Chinese. I love my people. I love my culture. But don't in, don't mix. Don't co-mingle the state with the people and the culture. The Chinese mm-hmm. government is not to be trusted. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they, uh, 
they are a huge threat to uh, to multicultural countries like the United States. And right, and Intel's getting all this funding subsidations in the U.S. to build up capacity in the U.S. TSMC is too, but obviously Intel's getting far more of that. Um, it, yeah. The, the Design-wise, would- yeah, design-wise, they would, uh, uh, I where they can really lose is in the design part of their business, designing chips. Mm-hmm. Uh, but by having the foundries, you know, it's not inconceivable that AMD would partner up with Intel should uh, you have massive supply disruption due to political risks uh, with China going after Formosa. Formosa is the original name of Taiwan. Mm-hmm. And actually, the reason behind that is because that's where Shanghai Shek, Nationalist China, yeah. escaped to after the end of ejecting the Japanese out of China after World War II. Uh, and the thing about it is that China wants a one China policy where all Chinese people are under one roof. It's called an ethno state. It's basically to lock down its people. Mm-hmm. And you see that in, you know, with Russia, they say, hey, all Slavic yeah. people are under one roof. It's basically it's to prevent people from leaving. agree with Russia on that. <laughs> yeah, it's to prevent people from leaving. Mm-hmm. Well, so to, to talk about like, what this would actually mean, though, for these companies financially. One thing, you know, that some people I talk to in the industry have thrown at me is they'll say, you know, well, Intel has their own foundries, so they can't do this and that, and AMD can't catch up because they don't have their own foundries. And I've pointed out, like, you know, well, if something happened to Taiwan, you know, what if there was an earthquake or a tidal wave? You know, Let's keep in mind, just having a centralized company like this is a danger, whether or not there are geopolitical consider- uh, considerations. Um, like, I, I don't know if people, like, really get, though, like, during World War II, the inventor of the Jeep actually didn't make that much money because it was a matter of national security. It was a smaller company that invented the Jeep, but then they just said, Ford, GM, everyone else, you're going to build the Jeep, too. And this happened with tanks, and I pointed this out to people, like, you understand, like, if Intel's foundries were very good, though, and their design teams fell apart, Intel might just make AMD and NVIDIA products, like, just yeah. like other people made the Jeep. And it's, I, and some people were like, oh, that's weird, you know, whatever. But I actually heard the, one of the heads of an OEM, or not the very top, but, you know, at the executive level, mention that, say that, you know, long term, we're not sure it's going to happen to Intel. We We think their foundries are good, though, so... This person actually said to me, they think that eh, maybe Intel will be making AMD APUs and server chips in five, ten years anyways. Like, And it's just so interesting to hear people say they think this might actually happen. And it seems like you're alluding to the fact that that could actually happen, that people need to understand that. And this is what I've heard from talking to people around Intel right now, is it's really the design team, the flaws in their design, bugs, how many steppings they need. I'm, I'm starting to see that, yeah. But the reason why you had uh, design flaws... I, I actually happened, you know, after listening to that uh, Intel engineer, it really, really was a good, uh, uh, one of the really good uh, uh, podcasts, uh, is I believe what happened is that the, the, the marketing team, the executive team, the design team were probably uh, having the foundry team bailing out the entire company time and time again, mm-hmm. uh, especially during the, the core two to the uh, 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 Haswell era, uh, to the uh, Broadwell era, and what happened is that as you get shrinking down your nodes 
further and further, you're basically going against the laws of physics. So the amount of cost is going to go up exponentially as you go down in the node. And, and so ultimately what did Intel in is the laws of physics, the lack of accountability by not having a viable competitor, and then the security flaws, and then having uh, AMD come back. Ultimately, and that's how Intel got exposed. And that's mm-hmm. what we're seeing the results of it. But this has been 25 years in the making. I, I think going back, uh, Intel was never really a design team. It was more mm-hmm. of a uh, heavy manufacturing team. They, they, the foundries were really the ones that are holding the company up. Not so, so you much would argue design. this was always the case. Like, yes, 10 nanometer fell behind. But if you look back the past like 50 years, I mean, I, 25 years. Lo- one of the founders 20. was more, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, they never, they didn't consistently have the best designs. They just always had yeah. the best foundries. Foofbug on the Pentium? Mm-hmm. Anyone? Uh, yeah, Foofbug on, 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 foof on the Pentium. Uh, you have Netburst with the Pentium 4. That was a trashy mm-hmm. uh, architecture. Uh, they have some good ones. You know, 486 is a good architecture. I really like that one. It's one of my favorites. Uh, the Pentium 3 was actually really, really good. Um, and in fact, the Pentium 3 was the basis for the Core 2 Duos, which then later became Sandy Bridge. So and, and I, I want to then uh, uh, transition to this question, then full stop. Like, full stop. Do you think Intel is going to turn around by 2025 and stop AMD from getting to a place that really threatens the company? And I don't think Intel is going out of business, granted. But like, no. or do you think it's somewhat inevitable at this point that a... I bet IBMification happens where the company does become smaller and is not as dominant in everything as it was 10 That's, years ago. It's, you think happening, it's just happening. Right. It's happening right now. Yeah. Uh, I, I think the Intel that you see today, I don't think it will be recognizable in like seven years. Mm-hmm. Um, you're really, uh, you're really talking at least this turnaround is going to be at least seven to 10 years. So, what do you think happens to this landscape then where AMD is per, and in you know different niches, you know, graphics for Nvidia, though they're working on their own Grace ARM chips. Um and you know AMD making their own APUs, CPUs, GPUs, uh, tons of competitors using ARM designs and RISC-V designs. Like where do you see Intel evolving into like what I just there's so many companies. Let me just throw out four. Like Five years from, let's say 10, 10 years from now, TSMC, Intel, AMD, NVIDIA, um, and Apple. Where do you see, what do you think the landscape looks like? Is TSMC still most of the manufacturing? Is Intel actually up in manufacturing? Is everyone buying AMD servers, not Intel servers, but they're building them on Intel and TSMC's node? Like all of those companies I mentioned, again, AMD, NVIDIA, Intel. It's hard to tell. Apple, I mean, TSMC, what do you think this is going to look like? I know, and I know, there's no way me or you could ever get this 100% right, but I'm curious. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, I'm really going on a limb for speculating, but uh, uh Apple is going to be, you know, it's going to basically be an entirely fully integrated ecosystem. They're just going to be all completely self-contained. Mm-hmm. Um, Intel and TSMC, I think, will be the two dominant foundries with a lot of smaller ones like Samsung and Global Foundries. Those are going to be kind of like your tier two. Uh, so Intel and TSMC, they're going to be your tier ones. They're your top two. And they're going to probably battle out. Uh, between the two. And so you do expect Intel to catch up to TSMC's 
technology within a few years, though. You do expect their founders. I'm to more. Catch back yeah. Up. What happened was that the uh, uh, the the executive uh, leadership of Intel. This is not Pat. This is based. I think mm. Paul. I forgot his name now. The the the, the CEO got in trouble with the, uh, with the bad relations. Um, I know which one you mean. The one that was really in charge while a lot of this stuff was falling apart. Yeah. Yeah. He basically uh, did not provide the the resources. Uh, basically, again, they took the foundry team for granted and basically uh, did not fully appreciate that they're running against the laws of physics. Mm-hmm. And so you need to have resources to the foundry team. They didn't do that. That's why you had delays. Now they're getting the resources. They're really they're they're cutting down everything. I mean, they're cutting you know even Optane, which I know really upset a lot of people. Um, but they're really putting their effort in into the foundries, and that's going to help. That's going to pay off, especially in this new geopolitical risk that we're seeing in the world. So, mm-hmm. um, so in the I, future, I just, you think Apple is going to have everything, but it's going to be mostly be for their stuff, even servers. Yeah. You think Intel is going to be trading? They're, they're never going to share with anyone. Yeah, they're, they're going to be on, you know on their own little world. Mm-hmm. And you Good think products. TSMC and Intel are going to be competing to manufacture everything for the world? And Intel will be making probably products for every company eventually. And plus, they're all you know. I mean, I mean, of course, yeah. And and, and don't forget, Intel has a very strong um, software ecosystem that's very very strong. Uh, there's a lot of uh, VARs that are very tied to Intel uh, products because they have the, the the know-how, the knowledge base, the uh, the worker knowledge that they have in those firms, especially in the financial services industry and the analytics. So they can extract a lot more performance out of Intel than they probably would out of AMD. So they're going to stick with Intel. And, 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 and a lot of those types of applications, they're not really core heavy. They're really single core oriented, not so much scale out. They're really scale up applications. So that's an area where I see Intel still retaining its strength. AMD is really going after the scale out applications, but mm-hmm. Genoa is basically them going after the heart of the Intel market. But there are some parts of the market that are just going to be untouchable to AMD. And quite frankly, I don't think AMD needs to care about them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and 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 so that's and then also another thing is the channel partners. You know, basically, you no know, lot of these are like small medium businesses. They don't really care about. And they just they want the cheapest products, and they don't need high cores. You know, four cores, eight cores is like the most they'll ever need. And and so with Intel can pump these out very very cheaply. So that's where they're going to have that market. And then a lot of these things is that they, they don't run virtual machines, which is really the biggest problem with the security vulnerabilities. Is that you run virtualized machines in a hostile environment or you have untrusted uh, tenants. That's where you run into the problems. If you don't do that, which a lot of these small businesses don't, it's not a big deal because the your biggest risk will be users and 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 the and the operating system and the applications, not so much the hardware at that point. And so I see that the channel partners and the uh, and the software ecosystem they will still retain the market share for that. Um, and quite frankly, those are those are. Niches and the SMBs are like high volume, but the average selling price on those is very, very small. They're, they're not really that expensive. Uh, AMD is really going after the most profitable part of the market. You know? Which makes sense. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, Carbon Cry writes in and he says, how do you view Ampere and other competitors to x86 server, be it Graviton, via AWS, Ampere itself, or NVIDIA with their Grace architecture? Talk about ARM, right? Yeah, like all of these, like NVIDIA is making their own, like, you know, tons of cores, ARM architecture, and then there's Ampere and a bunch of other competitors, like Graviton okay. from Amazon. If I know. take a software, can I take it on from Graviton to Ampere to any other the other ARM platforms and run them exactly the same without any modification? Mm -hmm. That's your only question, basically. Yeah, if you can't, then just you can have ARM, but it's, you're balkanizing the entire ARM ecosystem. That ain't good. That's like the Unix wars of the 80s and 90s. So uh, until you have until you have one unified ARM ecosystem, and a lot of these ARM platforms are really behind walled gardens. Mm -hmm. Whether it's yeah. Apple, which is or AWS or NVIDIA, they're all behind walled gardens. They have to if you want ARM to take overtake x86, you can't have walled gardens. Yeah, so you're basically saying like if your application is really specific and can use this, sure. Use NVIDIA Grace, whatever. Of course it'll be better at that. But you don't see this being like a multi-purpose thing that ever really takes on x86 market share in the near they can. term. They can, but so far I don't see that and and they're missing an opportunity on that. And then mm. on top of that, uh, while x86 is less efficient power-wise, um, you know, I mean, don't you think that the uh, x86 companies, whether Intel or AMD, are going to try to improve the efficiency to save all ARM? Mm. They're going to do that. Yeah, <laughs> it's funny. That's something I've, I've thought about too is all of these like predictions for like ARM making x86 go obsolete, most of them seem to come about four or five years ago when Intel was stagnating. Now that Intel and AMD aren't stagnating, all of a sudden ARM doesn't seem that more much more efficient, does it, like in half of these use cases, right? But it was when Intel was falling behind. Of course it looked better. Intel was stuck on 14 nanometer for a decade. I, I often think that a lot is just people get starry-eyed because they get bored of one thing they want something new. I, I see this too much, you know, with, uh, you know, e you know, you know, Patrick Henry and Serve the Home. I actually uh, mm. have uh, uh, read his, uh, read through, you know, been through his uh, materials over tw uh, close to 20 years. I mean, this is going all the way back to the early 2000s when he was doing it because he, a publication to deal with servers. So, uh, and even him, I, I see him kind of, you know, new technology comes out. He gets overly exuberant, and I actually have to say, even Windows sometimes also gets overly exuberant. They're just tools. At the end of the mm -hmm. day, it's about making money because uh, that's what servers are for. That they're, they're, they're for making money and not really for anything else. And if your server don't make you money, it's not a good product. Yeah, it, so then, you know, I don't get too exuberant. You know, th th this is. Uh... Maybe not a perfect analogy, but I would compare ARM taking over the world narratives to self-driving cars. Yeah, I mean, maybe, but like, you guys told me we were all going to have self-driving cars by 2020, 20 years ago, and we, we don't. I'm not saying we won't, but I want to see it before I put a time on when that happens moving forward, you know? I'm going to be honest with you. It'll never happen. And the reason it won't happen is because no computer, no technology can ever outthink a human in terms of create, uh, solving a problem creatively. 
no machine is going to outdo that. Mm-hmm. That's why you always put a human on a pilot on an aircraft. Sure, you can have automation, but if you have something extraneous that the automation hasn't been thought of, hasn't been uh, built for, you need a human there to creatively and quickly and efficiently solve the problem. And low latency, not being another you know planet sending the <laughs> relay to the AI. You know. Like oh, do this because then there's like a you know a second or so delay in making it. That's why we decision. have humans. And 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 I, I actually I actually read a, watched a documentary uh, about the building of the Boeing triple seven. And one thing that uh, uh, they say uh, is we always design the aircraft to have full authority by the pilot. Yes, we have the uh, automations and the computers and everything, but at the end of the day, the human must have final authority and. I always live by that, and I always view that, and that's why it's so disappointing when I learn about the 737 Max and its accident, and the fact that it violated that rule yeah. of not having it, it didn't the let human. them do the right command. Yeah, exactly. Disgusting. Yeah, I, I, I would just put a pin on that one and just say it's funny how I used to be in the camp of thinking, and and AI obviously will be used for tons of things moving forward. I'm not disputing. It's a that tool. At all. But, but right, but like I doubt that it's going to take over everything. I, some of it I'm starting to have to see it to believe it. But um, let me let me switch gears to these server questions here. I don't really have a good way to transition into this, so I'm just going to ask it. Um, King Harkinian writes in and says, "Any workloads, programs? Are there any workloads or programs you can think of that might profit from 3D V cache in the server world? I know AVX 512 has shown niche usage, but very impressive growth were applicable. I'm wondering if 3D V cache may also apply somewhere and bring serious growth. I don't see it. Um, For your stuff. No, no. Um, If your cache is too large for the applications, it actually becomes a hindrance. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're using a power. It's also creating more latency. Uh, I like the cache on the uh, on the Epic. It's large to the point where the microserver applications that I now run nowadays uh, they stay in the ca- once they get into the cache they don't really move, and so that cuts down on the data movements. And as a result, when I restart an Epic server over the next fourteen days, I actually notice that the power usage will decline by ten percent. Mm-hmm. Most of it happened in the first seven days, but by the 14th day, you basically settled down at about 10% below when you started the machine. That's basically the, the caches and everything start getting settled in. Once the machine settles in, then uh, uh, you get the performance will actually increase and the power usage will actually decrease. And that's because all the stuff is now in the cache and just doesn't move. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would not have been possible on Intel. And again, Intel is really geared for uh, scale up. Uh, blobby like applications where you have dealing with large chunks of data and so having large caches is not really helpful so they have small caches but they improve the speed on the memory bus but for mine I'm dealing with small chunks of data repetitively and so having large caches with lots of cores and threads is much more beneficial that's why uh, I'm finding out the, the Epic is just a much better architecturally fit not to mention it has the features that really fits into the workloads and the situation I'm in. So, but you see, yeah, you don't see again, it's not to dispute that some people have a use for Vcash. It's just at least what you do, it, you don't really, you don't need it. You know, you don't think you ever will really. No, it's, it's, it's money that's not needed to be spent. So, 
All right. Chris Rich writes in and says, the only version of MI300 that AMD has talked about is one with 24 Zen 4 cores seemingly taking up a quarter of the space of the APU. How interested would you be in a version that only had Zen 4 cores and no CDNA compute? Basically a processor with 96 Zen 4 cores and an unknown amount of cache and 128 gigabytes of HBM3, no DDR5, but a lot of CXL storage. Oh, so yeah, he's kind of getting at like, these upcoming processors with tons of HBM and CXL, like, is that well, something? So, that- yeah. <laughs> um, the MI300 um, is more biased towards uh, GPU workloads. Most of my workloads are CPU with a little touch of GPU, but it's mostly CPU. So the MI300 is not the right match for the workload. Uh, but if he has mostly 96 cores and you know some touch of CSX and uh, some cDNA, that may be a product, but then we have to look at the power consumption. If it's 400 watts, just like with Cascade Lake AP, I'm not going to consider it because you can need liquid cooling. The problem is that the data centers I'm in forbid liquid cooling. It's done that for liability reasons. If you got a leak, it goes down through all the servers below. Uh, that's a that's a disaster. That's a financial disaster. And then on top of that, the uh, uh, what is the life cycle of a liquid cool server? You know, I generally keep servers 10 years. What happens after five years? What happened to the hoses, the liquids, the uh, all the plumbing after five years? Um, I don't know the answer to that. And then also a lot of data centers don't have the the uh, the technical staff know how to deal with liquid cooled servers as well. So there's a lot of issues when you start getting to these high TDB s- CPUs. That's why when Intel came out with the Cascade Lake AP. That's a 56-core, 400-watt CPU. Mm-hmm. You know, I call that stupid. And I, I call that stupid for a reason. And and now I'm seeing AMD doing the same yeah. thing. Yes, with I think more they're cores. just trying to make sure they can match Intel wherever Intel goes. Like I've known for a few years now, they were working on 700-watt chips that are default liquid-cooled. And I think it's because they know Intel is going to do it, and they want to make sure Intel can't claim anything you know, that they can't do or something. I, I think it's driven a lot to do by the hyperscalers because uh, hyperscalers well, yeah. rent out time. And so basically they want to get as much cycle in a given amount of time because they charge customers based on the cycles they use. So yeah, it's they can run like the uh, workstation slash HEDT model, but at a grand scale, right? Yes. And that's where that's yeah. going. And the things that, but for most enterprise applications, they don't need that. And, and mm-hmm. it's, it, and the problem is that, uh, yes, density is nice, but if I incre- it increases the data center infrastructure costs, what am I paying for? You know, it, you basically reach the law of diminishing return with regards to density. So I, I do want to jump into one kind of like one or two final subjects here. Uh, one we always seem to touch on it. Um, how are AMD graphics doing in the professional setting in 2023? My, my memory is back in 2019 and then in 2020, every time I had you on, you'd say something like, and I'd, I'd hear this from other server people as well, like AMD professional graphics and accelerator cards, they get better every year, they get more reliable every year, the software is always getting better, but uh, it's still not there yet with competing with NVIDIA. Would you say that? And Clean Sweep writes in and basically asks what's going on with Intel's professional graphics products as well. So, you know, AMD first, but then I'm also curious if you have anything to say about that. Um, unfortunately, because of Spectre and Meltdown and 
uh, all the security vulnerabilities. I had to shelve the uh, the graphics eye for a while. Um, I, I do have graphics, but not as much. And that's because uh, I devote my attention to uh, the security and, and uh, dealing with the after effects of uh, uh, Spectre and Meltdown and transitioning all the applications to uh, uh, AMD. So that's the first priority. But now I'm starting to get right back into the GPUs. And actually, uh, I'm going to start doing some testing with GPUs. And I just took a look on the secondhand market. The GPUs I was looking at, those are list price of like ten dollars to $15,000. You can get them for like 100 bucks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it shows you the depreciation of, uh, of server GPUs because there's no secondhand market. Right. Uh, on top of that, NVIDIA GPUs, they list price at like dollars $20,000, $25,000. Now, I don't think they charge customers really that amount of money. I think that's just being less, but generally uh, it's about 10000 on this, by the way. I have a contact who does stuff with, um, you know, the professional, uh, what is it? Uh, what are they even called now? They just call them RTX 6000 ADA. I guess what they used to call the A-series and before that were called Quadro. He said their new $6,800 chips, they're getting them for like half that in bulk. So yeah, what you see for these list prices, yeah, if you're like a, a hobbyist who's buying this to do like an indie movie. Yeah. Maybe you're spending seven grand, but the, these workstation companies, they're paying like three to 4,000 guys. <laughs> Just so you know, they're not that dumb. They, I mean, I mean, you know, you look at, you know, you listen to me, you know, think of me times all those people. None mm-hmm. of these people are dumb. But yeah, so wait, so what do you, so you're saying at the end of the day, well, at least what you're looking at, you're just looking for used products because of how cheap they are in this segment. No, I'm testing. I'm testing them right now. And the thing okay. is that the um, uh, the other thing is that the performance requirements is not as high. So getting the latest and greatest, it's not worth it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, you know, five year old G, uh, server GPUs are just fine mm-hmm. from a, from a teraflop standpoint. It, it's more than enough. The biggest issue is really the fact that CUDA's got really a lock on the software ecosystem. Uh, all your databases, uh, your GPU computes, your even open source, proprietary, everything in the middle is all uh, CUDA-based. And the problem is that, uh, and to NVIDIA's credit, they embedded their code throughout the entire so- uh, source code. I actually looked into, say, Postgres GPU, uh, Postgres, and I saw CUDA's just all over the place. So it's very hard to get that stuff out. Uh, the right way to do it is basically you write the software and then you have a driver, which then mm-hmm. you put all your CUDA commands in there and then you can switch your back end. But I, I, I have a sense that probably NVIDIA was able to convince them to rewrite the code and then they just basically made a mess of the entire code. And so it makes it very hard for them to get it out. Um, yeah. Even if, you know, with tools that convert to uh, uh, C- uh, CSL, whatever the I forgot the language of it offhand, and it's very hard to get that stuff out. And so, well, and Nvidia is notorious for doing that in gaming too, like with their you know packages with game devs. I think there was a Batman game like a decade ago where the AMD GPUs basically didn't work, and the devs found like a flag in there that just almost disabled AMD GPUs and how some of these games will have NVIDIA's coding as they help port games to the PC version from the console version. NVIDIA will just go in and throw their code everywhere 
some would well, argue intentionally so you have so that Nvidia performs is better supported. I, I'm not going to say that because you know I, I've worked with developers and you know they, they have a deadline and they just try to get the stuff done mm-hmm. as quickly as possible but nvidia so, knows that and so they're happy to help out though and make sure that their code yeah is it's the just code. a side effect it's not intent i wouldn't say intentional but it's a side effect and it had a benefit to to nvidia so mm-hmm. well yeah it's it's um i don't think the devs are trying to hurt amd no <laughs> exactly yeah yeah so, but, but, uh, so it sounds like you're saying from two years ago amd still just I mean, you thought they were making progress from like 2018 to 2021, but you're they, not seeing stalling. it right now. Yeah, it, I wouldn't say stalling. It's they have to build a foundation and they have to build it from scratch. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's going to take at least 10 to 15 years. Really. Way and longer really, than taking on Intel to take on NVIDIA. It's going to take way, way, way longer. Because because the thing is that uh, you have an entire generation of people that have built their livelihoods only on CUDA. Mm-hmm. And these people are in their 30s and 40s. And 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 you can't ask them to change to a different uh, software ecosystem. They're already permanently tied to NVIDIA, and so uh, which is a cautionary tale for people who want <laughs> yes. to get into uh, to the industry. Is when you start learning skills, make sure you have an an escape stra- uh, an exit strategy. For your skills, you don't want to tie your skills to any one particular company, or you're going to find your whole livelihood trapped by that one company. Mm-hmm. And and unfortunately, you have a whole generation of people that are trapped on that on that uh, uh, on that ecosystem. But the reason for that is because Nvidia, to their credit, were first movers and they mm-hmm. developed the technology way before anybody, and so. Yes, it's proprietary, but there was nothing around to for them to build. So they literally built from scratch. So this is the fruits of their labor to building a whole new ecosystem from scratch. AMD is going to have to do the same thing. So they're about 10, 15, you're really not going to see anything really until 15 to 20 years because you got a whole new generation of people. Um. So, do you have any thoughts on Intel's XC professional? I think now they call them Flex GPUs and those Arctic Sound accelerators and any of that. Like, are you looking at any of Intel's, you know, out there cards for professional use? Non-existent. Mm-hmm. Like, not even on your radar whatsoever. Okay. Could be, you, you're going to end up. You're going to end up being an orphan product. Bro, mm-hmm. I know. Just like if you bought the, if you invest in Intel uh, Xeon Phi. You got an orphan product. Yeah. 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 That, that, that's where the conference is. Whatever lost. issue AMD has, Intel's in that department double, triple the issue, basically. Yeah. 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 Is there anything else you wanted to discuss with regards to the core subjects of like Intel, AMD, NVIDIA? Because we went through the notes and this is, we actually got into pretty much everything I wanted yeah, to actually, get into. Yeah, actually, there's uh, some uh, PSA. Um, uh, if any of you wants to, uh, try to learn about servers and buy one and play around with it. Um, I would actually just buy Intel. They're dirt cheap. You can mm-hmm. learn as much about them as AMD, but at far less cost. Also, a big pitfall when you buy secondhand AMD Epic servers, especially if you buy loose processors, you've got to know which vendor the Epic processor comes from or which or where uh, which vendor that the uh, system comes from. 
and you cannot go between different vendors. Uh, you cannot transfer Epic processors between vendors because there's a security feature inside the chip that it's mm. a permanent fuse inside the chip that when blown, it will only work with that one vendor. And, it, and the reason they do that is for security because they don't want people mucking around with processes, you know, switching processes around. So they're mm-hmm. trying to tie the processes to the system. And it's mostly to protect against physical attacks by untrusted technicians and untrusted admins in a shared data center. Oh, okay. Yes. So, which is great for people like us in the uh, primary markets. You know, we're in the primary where we buy service new. We'll have the fuses blown so that we lock the processor onto the server so that no one messes around with them. Mm-hmm. That's oh, why I we see. also, yeah. Uh, that's why I get my, you know, that's why I really like AMD because then, you know, memory's encrypted, the processor encrypts the data. Uh, the last thing I got to do is replace all the hard drives. They're going to be all encrypted. My SSDs are all encrypted. Uh, so data at rest, data in use, data in flight, all phases of the data, of the data lifecycle is all encrypted. That means there's no way that people can it's very difficult to get access to the data on a machine even you have physical access right because of that extra step there yeah. right but if you're buying epic process on the used markets you got to mm-hmm. be aware of that otherwise you're going to buy yourself an epic server and it's not going to work okay no, that's, so that's, a, that's really good advice that i've never even thought of you know thought to think yeah. of yeah <laughs> be aware of that thing than you're saying too Yes, yes. And actually, uh, another uh, mainstream uh, enterprise uh, uh, enterprise uh, uh, YouTube, uh, uh, media person uh, talked about his name, uh, served at home, Patrick Kennedy. He also mm-hmm. talked about that, too. So uh, the other one is uh, more related with the kind of ordinary users. If you do like small NAS arrays for your home storage mm-hmm. and uh, you know, you know, small business or your home storage. My friend has one. Yeah. For like okay. backing up his movies when you buy, or something. Right. When you buy hard drives, you buy hard drives, NAS hard drives for use in raid, like mirroring raid five, raid six. Or if you really want to speak without the, uh, without safety aspect, like raid zero, but you know, if you do mirroring or raid five, it's the most common type. You make sure your hard drives are CMR, conventional magnetic recording. Do not buy hard drives that are SMR, just shingle mag, uh, magnet recording. And signal uh, signal tracks basically they have the data overlap one on top of the other, mm-hmm. which is fine for reading. It allows you to stuff more data onto a given platter on the disk. But when you write, you have to read. All the overlapping data off first, put onto another part of the disk, oh. write, write the uh, stuff on, then rewrite the data back on. So you have multiple reads, multiple writes for the same write operation versus a single write operation. So it's very slow on writes. That becomes a real issue when you have a failed drive and you need to rebuild the drive. And the key thing is that you need to make sure that the RAID recovers quickly. Otherwise, if a second drive fails while you do the rebuilding, you lose your data. And I've had situations where multiple drives failed 
within a few days of one another. Mm-hmm. And because I have a fast rebuild time and I have multiple hot spares, uh, I literally got away with saving the data by mere hours. It was mm-hmm. very scary. Instead I of the end, other way around, yeah. Yeah. And I end up, those were Seagate drives, and I end up going through and replacing all of them. Mm-hmm. I've had two. Yeah. I, I hate them with a passion. Simply because I had way too many problems, failures with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, in this case, the uh, company in question is Western Digital, one of my favorite companies. But unfortunately, they have engaged in deceptive marketing and advertising on their NAS drives, specifically oh. their WD Red drives. They're basically one through six terabyte drives. Make Those are SMR hard drives. They say they're for NAS. Do not buy them. Do not buy them. Do not buy them. You're going to find out your rebuild times are about 10 times as long. So it'll take you. Instead and of, I know uh, you're going to be anonymous for this, but I just wish I just wish people knew how serious your face was saying this. And, and for good reason that it, it, illusion data. Yeah, it comes from a good place of like, hey, yeah, these are things I've learned in the past few years that people really got to know about, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so. There's nothing wrong with SMRs and RAIDs. You have to actually develop, you have to implement proper operating procedures when managing SMR hard drives in a RAID array. So the way I would do it is that, first of all, the type of data I would put on an SMR is basically write once archive only. So basically pure archiving drives, no read and writes. So once you write, you're done. Then what I do is I mirror them, I have hot spares. And I have no set of drive, and no set of mirrors. If I got a drive failure, I got a hot spare, they're going to try to rebuild it. At the same time, once I get notification of that failure, I'm going to take that remaining drive, I'm going to build it, copy it onto another mirror right away. So that it doesn't, so that because the, the rebuild time just takes so long, I'd rather just have a copy straight away and basically erase who gets done, the rebuild or the copy. But at least I'm trying to reduce the vulnerability time. But that's an operating procedure that you have to do when you take care of SMR hard drives. The, the average person is not going to take care of that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, no, so that, do not buy SMR hard drives. PSA, though, for anybody doing that. Yeah, Actually, do now not I'd buy be curious it. to ask my friend what he got. I wonder. Yeah. Yeah, CMR hard drives only. And by the way, when you buy uh, hard drives for, for NAS, only buy the hard drives built for NAS. Because uh, ordinary desktop hard drives, they don't have the right firmware to handle uh, RAID jitters. Basically, mm-hmm. they they time out to uh, they don't respond quick enough to the uh, controller, and then the control would drop the RAID. I experienced that mm-hmm. firsthand too. So I experienced that firsthand ten at least ten years ago. Call up the co- call up the company says, "What's going on? Why my drive drives dropping out?" They told me about the firmware mm-hmm. on the Deckham and tell me that. Okay. Well, that that's good. That's some good final advice though. I think that's everything though. I think we went through basically a relook at the industry over the past few years, how things have changed. I think the conclusion we've come to is, wow. I mean, we thought Intel could get here, but we just, and it's funny by the way, adored TV was on a few months ago and he said the same thing you said. And I said with you, it's like, I just didn't think it happened this soon to Intel. Like th- that's what's absolutely blown that's my mind. Scary. All right. Well, I mean, th- I want to thank you for coming on earlier than expected, Blasting. but in some ways 
Oh, what were you going to say? Yeah. Um, one thing I've definitely also noticed is that uh, the Epic servers, they are depreciating slowly. Mm-hmm. They are still they are still expensive to buy, even the Epic Roams. The, the Naples is actually, they're not much valuable, but the, the, even Rome Epic, you know, I actually quote for an Epic Rome server, they're not, they haven't fallen in price at all. Mm-hmm. So they're, they are not depreciating that rapidly. Right, which means, you know, Intel's yeah. competing with itself too then. Like that's why people don't want to get this super expensive Intel stuff too, is they know it's going to depreciate so quickly. And frankly, they may be able to just buy used Intel stuff anyways. Not, not, not for, not for enterprise customers. They can't do that. But I mean, you know, you know, you know, members of your audience, if they want to start to play around servers, you know, get Intel servers. You know, you know, if you, if uh, the problem is that uh, AMD service just, it's, it's a lot more, it's a lot more trouble when you're trying to get secondhand AMD service. Mm-hmm. But I will say though, even though you came on sooner than expect, than I was initially planning this year, um. I think I'm definitely going to want to have you on after the next generation of stuff comes out because this market share, this year is this year is going to be in, yeah this is a big year for servers. No, there and I th- I think there's going to be many opportunities uh, over the next twelve months to ha- to a follow up episode. But for now, though, I do want to thank you for coming on for this episode. It's always a pleasure. It's long overdue. I really enjoyed this one, and I'm sure. Our followers, uh, or my, our broken Silicon's followers, enjoyed it a lot as well. And I'll just remind everybody, you know, you know, subscribe to Moore's Law Z on YouTube, ring the bell button, tell your friends about us, like us, subscribe to Broken Silicon on your podcast app of choice, give us a review, and you know, if you join the Patreon, you can submit questions and get this early and ad free. And there's a whole host of other content out there and exclusive podcasts. We really cannot do this without Patreon support. And um, yeah, thanks everybody for listening. Thank you, and uh, you do a good job. Keep it up. (laughs) Oh, thank you. This podcast was brought to you by the YouTube channel and website Moore's Law is Dead. Moore's Law is Dead and Broken Silicon are trademarks of their creator, Tom. That guy is me, and I am indeed the creator, editor, writer, and showrunner of Moore's Law is Dead podcast, videos, articles, and other media. However, it's not just me. Moore's Law is Dead is a team with Broken Silicon co-hosted by my brother Dan, audio editing by Gerard Cortez, renders being done by the industrial designer Jean-Philippe Clermont, and special assistance is also provided by Carmen Cry and Carrie Nosugad as well. Find all of our information at www.moreslawisdead.com on the about slash support page in the event you do want to hire me for consulting work, hire Gerard for audio work, hire Jean-Philippe for industrial design work, or you're interested in working with Carbon Cry or Carrie No Sugata as well. You can also find our long-term sponsors on that page if you want to show them some love for putting food on our tables. Or you can also mail us some love. You can send letters or hardware donations to the following address. Moore's Law is Dead, P.O. Box 60632 in Nashville, Tennessee, zip code 37206. Although, to be honest, the best way to show Moore's Laws Dead some love is to support us on Patreon. Patrons are what makes Moore's Laws Dead content truly possible. Every month and really every day, depending on who you're talking about, me, Gerard, Dan, and Jean-Philippe are working tirelessly to provide a steady stream of content that we could not keep doing unless we knew the work was possible without being reliant on sponsors dictating every little thing we put out. Don't get us wrong. We love our sponsors, but we love directly working for you, our fans, 
much more. If you have any extra money, even a couple free dollars a month, consider supporting us directly on Patreon. Those couple of monthly dollars will get you access to the exclusive podcast Die Shrink, voting on subjects of future podcast episodes, the ability to ask guests questions, and of course, access to the Moore's Laws Dead Discord full of like-minded people who I am sure would love to meet you. I am one of them. Additionally, higher tiers get access to early, ad-free episodes of Broken Silicon, the ability to ask questions in all Broken Silicon episodes and Loose Ends live streams ahead of the recording, and the entire back catalog of Moore's Law Z podcasts, in addition to having thanks in the credits of videos and podcasts depending on the tier with other perks available as well. And hey... If you cannot afford to support us directly every month, please do share Moore's Law is Dead videos and podcasts with friends and family and on social media and websites like Reddit. And give Broken Silicon a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast app of choice. All of this does really help us so much. But like I said, this podcast would not be possible without it, the patrons directly providing predictable and reliable support every month. And so now it is time to give a personal thanks to the greatest of the fans. The following supporters are at the 10 gigahertz or higher supported levels. Brad Medlin, Drita Full, A.V., Anthony Greffa, Greg Patakim, Hamrock Wire, Brett Jones, Aaron Close, Little Germany, Dan Rounier, Daniel Hyde, Shredbird, Brian Riggleman, Dr. Foreman, Sam Miller, Deke, Josh Law, and the Mechanical Philosopher, Terrence Herod, SNES Chalmers, Tom Bailey, Greg T. Wanchuk, Andrew S., Frank Zielinski, Daniel D., MJB1, Eric Jackson, Justice Brennan, Joshua L. Herrera, Valko Malev, The Boss Haas, Nicholas Buckner, Spamtrum G. Spamtrum, Jonathan, Lord Starstream, General Drips, Blake, Franco Frederick, Matthew Lazier, Jensen Wang, Nathan Mose, Aziris, Gregory Sacker, Dominique Cock, Jake Dude 23, Jake Martin, Cameron, Venti CZ, Hardforum.com, Original Ross, Slicky, Lance Basser, David Cowden, Ricky Tan, Christopher A. Butler, GZ Ziggy, Sarcastro, Stephen Hart, David Sebastian, Meat and Pork Stew, Tim Robb, Luis Correa, Ian Clifford, Jesse Jeskaliak, Travis Gooding, Holden Mobley, Nanyan, Chris Rich, Deepest Learners, Mad, Zutsu Taylor, Stephen Coates, Michael McKee, Chuck Glidden, Sammy Malas, Greg, AWS Danny, Patrick Crow, Amiable Chief, Brett Summer, Milton, Stephen Dick, Tommy, John, Bruja, Mark Mitchell, McDaffy, AC, James Anderson, Marshall Pierce, Mark Raidmaker, Dave Schultz, 3DS Boy 08, Hal Buma, Norithio, Matthew Landavazo, Stefan, Koladic, Henry Zhang, Judson N, Keith Moore, The Grid, Michelle Pell, B31337 Antics, Joseph Kelly, Earth Taurus, Hexapuma, Chrysantine, Germ Theriera, RB Racer, Keith Moore, Kita Abdul Kadar, Precision, DNA Tech, Radiant Technologies Group, John O'Shea, Royce Meyer, Charles Russell, Russian Ari, Sushmatik Autumn, Jackson Miller, JSMMH, Neith Rizink, Mean Dean, Cal, Andre Jacques, Gaiman Since Reagan, Jeff Sedler, Jordan Simkovic, Loophole 35, Winstar, William Welpley, James I. Raider, Corey Leonard, Nalima, John Shin, Justin Bustle, Kelvin, Austin Haggerty, Roger Davies, Shea, Julian Leaked, Corey Chappelle, Evan Dingle, C2, John Iverson, Michael, Aaron, The Eternal Dreamers, Jansen, Angima, Him Sigung, Derek Lamine, and of course, thank you to Sahara for the music. 